the truth is that all of life's big decisions have a component of head and heart to them. If you silo those decisions, if you compartmentalize them, it's really lopsided and you're missing a huge part of the picture. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it. So today, we're here with Abby Davison. She's a social innovation leader and career development expert. Most recently, she spent nine years at a global retailer, Gap Inc., where she served as the president of the Gap Foundation and co-founded the company's employee research group for parents. She also recently released her book, Money and Love, an intelligent roadmap for life's biggest decisions. I'm so excited to be here, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I am based in San Francisco, so I am, um, and it's actually been kind of warm. So I know lots of people are all over and there's lots of people with snow um, on the ground and other things, but um, I'm sending you some warmth from over here. Awesome. I'm also in San Francisco. Um, and so for everyone that doesn't know me, I am Rachel Dwyer. I'm a project manager here for Fishbowl and I run all the Fishbowl Lives. Um, so if you join any Fishbowls, you've probably seen me in the room. Um, and today I am moderating. Um, and so the first thing that I want to kick off, well, actually, I want to ever know that her book will also be linked in the event as well, as well as the recording. So don't forget to check that out. So first, I want to kick it off with what inspired you to write your book and what can people expect to get out of reading it? When I was in my early and mid-20s, I would say like so many people, I struggled with how to make big life decisions. Um, Should I move to a new city just because I want to live there, even if I don't have a job? Is that irresponsible? Is that okay? Um, If I'm seeing someone, how do I know if things are getting serious? If I want to take this relationship to the the next level, what does that even mean um, to go to the next level? And so, um, and I didn't know why I was having such a hard time. I, you know, I, I made decisions, but it didn't feel like I knew how to go about it. Didn't feel like anyone ever told me the way to do it. And then I went to graduate school at Stanford Business School, and I took a class taught by my co-author, Myra Strober. She was the first uh, woman professor hired at the business school there, and is an amazing pioneer. And that class was called Work and Family. And it was like a light bulb went off for me because what she shared in the class, which is what we talk about in the book, the book is based on the class, is that the reason it's so hard to make these big life decisions is because the conventional wisdom on how you should go about it is all wrong. We're taught if we have a career decision or a financial decision to make, to think about it with our head, really analyze it. And then if you have a relationship decision to make, use your heart, you know, think about how you feel. Um, Don't think about money, that would be materialistic. But the truth is that all of life's big decisions have a component of head and heart to them. We have both, right, as humans. And if you silo those decisions, if you compartmentalize them, it's really lopsided and you're missing a huge part of the picture. And you're more likely to make a decision that later you would regret. And so I took this class with the guy I had been dating for about a year at the time. 
and we were about to graduate. We had to make big decisions about where do we look for jobs? Um, if we end up in the same city, do we live together? And these were questions that were really daunting and uncomfortable to talk about after a short time dating, but taking the class prompted us to have these really awkward and uncomfortable conversations. And he ended up, we ended up getting married. Um, we came back for, as guest speakers to the class for about a decade. And then when Myra Strober, the professor, retired, the class was no longer offered by Stanford. And Myra and I had lunch one day because we had kept in touch. And she told me she was thinking about writing a book about the class. She said, I don't know. I just I haven't made progress on it. And I said, well, maybe you need an accountability partner. As you mentioned, I had been at Gap, kind of climbing the corporate ladder there. And I had just launched the employee resource group for working parents there. And my partner in crime for that was a working dad on a legal team. And I couldn't have done it without him. It was so important to have someone to um, hold each other accountable and to laugh about things when they weren't going well. And so I said, well, maybe you need an accountability partner. And she looked at me and she said, actually, I need more than that. I need a co-author. You've been road testing all these concepts over the last decade plus. We have really complementary perspectives. Will you write this book with me? And so that was the journey of how we got here. And the goal and what people will find in the book is a flexible but sturdy framework that can be applied to all sorts of big life decisions where money and love are involved. One thing that we see on Fishbowl often in our relationship bowl is couples figuring out like what is fair when splitting up the cost when they live together. Um, I've seen a lot of like heated conversations about it, whether if, you know, he makes more, she makes more um, and how to figure that out. Do you have any advice for the couples that are dealing with that right now? Absolutely. And this is exactly something that my then boyfriend and I faced when we moved in together right after graduating and we had really different salaries he was working for a hedge fund. I was working for a nonprofit. We were making wildly different amounts. And one of the um, things that we learned in Myra's class is that couples that have shared um, accounts have are more satisfied and um, kind of connected and fulfilled. And so that can look like a lot of things, right? That could look like pooling everything, which maybe you don't want to do right out of the gate when you're just seeing someone and you're not, you know, there's not legally, um, you're not legally connected in any way. It could look like um, pooling part of your money. So you put a portion of it into a joint savings account or a joint checking account, and you use that to pay expenses like rent and groceries and things like that. Or you could just keep everything separate and write each other, you know, Venmo each other or, you know, some other way to divide things. And so what the research shows is that couples that pool part of their money or all of their money are more successful. And so what we ended up doing um, and what certainly my suggestion would be is with that idea of kind of building trust and shared um, financial responsibility over time, start with, you know, a smaller amount. So what we did was we put, uh, we agreed on a percentage of our paycheck that we would contribute to this shared account at the beginning of our relationship. And we used that and it was a, a portion of our salary, right? So it didn't mean, it didn't make a difference that we were making different amounts because we said, okay, well, what's fair is that, you know, we'll each contribute. Um, I don't, I don't remember what it was. Let's say it was like, you know, 
30% of our paychecks to this shared um, expense, shared account. And we would use that to pay rent, to pay utilities, things like that. And then over time, as we got more serious, as we got engaged, and then as we got married, we actually bumped up that percentage. So when we got engaged, maybe it was, you know, 70% of our salary was going to this joint account. And then we got married and now we've been together 13 plus years after, you know, marriage, we have two kids, like the vast majority of our, of our um, income is going to this shared account. We still keep something separate so that we could buy each other gifts or we could use it to go away for the weekend with friends and, you know, not think at all about having expenses that the other person, you know, isn't benefiting from. But that's how I would suggest going about it is to, to have that conversation early on, talk about your shared financial stories, something that we all have, and we um, don't necessarily realize how influential they are in our attitude towards money. But that can really be important to you know, share them with the other person that you're thinking of combining finances with so you know where each other is coming from. Perfect. And do you have any advice when there's, I think you kind of mentioned it, but a little bit more people always talk about like, if someone makes significantly more, have like, how do they deal with kind of what, what you feel is fair? I've, I've seen a lot of people talk about like emotion of like, you know, the man wanting to feel like a provider, even though it's taxing on them. Do you have any advice kind of, you know, how to maybe take the emotion out of that and just think about the numbers? Well, you can't. I mean, that's the thing, right? You can't really ever take the emotion out of something that is, you know, fundamentally about the person you care about. And we all, and we all bring emotion to our money stories, like I mentioned. And so I, we can talk about our, our five-step framework. We call it the five C's. Um, the first C is about clarifying what's most important to you. And so with that, making sure that you are really clear what is important to you about money? Is it important to you? You know, are you looking to have a certain lifestyle? Are you looking to save for certain financial goals? Are you looking to, you know, provide? As you mentioned, is that something that's really important to you? Because maybe you didn't experience that growing up, and you're coming from a place where you never got to, you know, feel provided for, and so now you you're trying to, you know, compensate from that as for that as so many people are, right? We're very affected by our upbringing and how that influenced our thoughts about money. And so it's very important to get clear in your own mind what your key values, your key goals are about money. And then the second C is to communicate. And this is something where, again, this can feel really awkward and uncomfortable to talk with someone about um, money. It's one of these issues in our society that's very taboo. Um, Certainly, I'd say women are socialized more than men to not talk about money, but it's so important in any relationship to make sure you're establishing a pattern from early on of having transparent, honest conversations about these topics so that it's not something that just gets swept under the rug and assumptions are made and um, you're not really talking about those bigger, uh, important issues to you. That's, that's, I'd say, you know, you want to avoid having money be something that you don't talk about because it is so fundamental to our lives. That's great advice. So something else that, you know, you've seen a lot recently, you know, on Fishbowl, but of course, just throughout the news is there's been so many layoffs um, and, you know, it's mostly tech, but now it's across a lot of different industries. What advice do you have for any couples, you know, dating or married that are dealing with, 
a partner that either is late, one is laid off, or maybe both of them are laid off, like how do you handle finances and um, in that situation? So if you've established this pattern and this practice, as I was talking about before, of having transparent conversations with your partner, then this is a perfect time to um, bring it back up. Um, Certainly, it's something that when any big life change happens, ideally before, but sometimes you don't know before, right, with layoffs, um, you set aside some time to have this conversation with your partner. And and I would say it's really important not to spring it on them at an inopportune time, right? Don't just casually bring it up when you're like brushing your teeth, getting ready for bed, or say you have kids, like rushing them out the door in the morning. Like those are not good times to introduce big weighty topics about about money um, or about anything else, frankly. And so what what would work well instead is to say, hey, Um, Can we set up some time? There's something on my mind, um, and I'd love to talk about it with you at a good time. Can we agree and put it on the calendar? And I'm a big believer in, you know, if you schedule it, it's more likely to happen. And so ideally, you have a regular check-in with your partner. Um, That could look like a weekly check-in. That could look, I mean, my my husband and I have time every week where we check in with each other and we talk about um, mostly logistics because we have two young kids. And so there's a lot of pickups and drop-offs and birthday parties and piano lessons and other things to sort out. Um, but there are, it's also an opportunity that we bring up bigger topics. And, you know, that's the set aside time that we have every week where it's not like we're rushing between, you know, two things. We're dedicating the time, put your phone down or leave it in another room um, and give your partner your, your full attention in, the, in that time. And, you know, we often think about what we want to say in these um, types of conversations. It's more important or equally important to think about where and when you have these conversations. And so, like I said, don't do it, you know, when you're kind of rushing in between Zooms, um, drop it casually to say like, oh, hey, like, I'm not getting a paycheck anymore. Can we talk about what that means? It's like, let's set aside the time. And then um, really listen, you know, share what the, you know, what's on your mind. And then I would say, listen to your partner. We are so trained to think about like, what's the next thing we're going to say. And we really want to kind of get all of our thoughts out. But for this to be a true conversation, you have to be listening as much or if not more than you're talking. And so that's a, a time to say, you know, say somebody did get laid off, say, hey, you know, I'm still processing what happened one of the things on my mind is how this is going to affect our finances because, or, or my finances, if we're not you know, married yet, can we talk about what that could look like in the coming months and how we can make a plan for us to maybe divide things differently or for us to scale back our budget if we've been used to a certain lifestyle um, so that this isn't kind of another added pressure on me as I'm looking for a new job. Again, having those conversations in a time that is well suited to the topic. And one thing that my husband and I have found to be really helpful is having these types of conversations outside on a hike. It's there's something about getting out of our routines, out of like the piles of laundry and the dishes and the chaos of our home allows us to think more expansively. So we'll go on a hike, we'll let our kids run ahead of us, and we'll kind of bring up the big topics that are weighing on us. And that seems to work better for us because it gives us a little bit more mental space to have different types of conversations than we're able to have um, when we're kind of in the midst of our daily lives. So you kind of touched in it in your answer, but I did get a question um, from the audience. And their question is about 
pooling resources and having an issue with communicating that um, if you've been married for a few years, um, for several years already, and that's not something you do and you maybe want to make adjustments, um, how how do you handle that conversation? Um, if it's not something you, you've done you know, for the many years you've been married. And then if you have any um, studies, you mentioned a few studies, do you have anything that um, the person could reference? Yeah, so we we quote a lot of studies in our book. My co-author is a labor economist, and so there's no shortage of <laughs> research and citations that are um, in our book, Money and Love. And what I have found helpful is, um, and some people have actually told me they've already done this, to say, hey, I was listening to this author or I read this book recently that made me realize there are some conversations that would maybe be helpful for us to have. And so there's not any reason that you can't introduce a practice um, of communication into an existing relationship if it hasn't been part of your routine. You can certainly use this as an excuse to bring it up and say, hey, I was listening to this author talk and she was talking about how she and her husband have these regular conversations to talk about their big picture goals um, down to like the nitty gritty, like who's doing what this week and logistics. And, you know, my husband and I call it TCOB, taking care of business. <laughs> we just like put it on the calendar um, and have a, a TCOB meeting um, once a week. And, you know, you can start out when we were first starting out and, you know, hadn't, didn't have an established practice. We also had kind of annual retreats. And we, we, we strive to still do this. Um, sometimes we miss a year or two, um, but we have kind of visioning sessions, right? Where we talk about just like you do strategic planning in any job, it's helpful to do this in the context of a relationship and talk about, you know, is owning a, a home together one day a goal, right? If so, um, how, what are, how are you going to make progress towards that? What are the other big goals that you have in your life, both professionally, um, financially, with regard to family, um, wellness, spirituality, whatever are those big rocks that you want to make sure you have space for in your life, they can be a topic on the agenda. Um, and as you, you know, go through these topics, share the things that are really important to you. Don't just assume, okay, well, we've been together for several years. My partner probably already knows what's important to me. I think one of the biggest mistakes we assume is that when we're with someone, we that they can read our mind, right? Um, and I am constantly surprised that, you know, even though I've been with my husband for 15 plus years, he cannot read my mind. And so it's very important to be sharing those, um, again, that kind of what's most important to us. And then, you know, what then, how are we going to work together towards those goals? And and I think a visualization that is really helpful in these types of situations is to picture the two of you kind of on the same team. You're on the same side of the table in terms of wanting to build a life together, build, you know, reach your dreams together. I think often we become sort of adversarial with the people who we're in a relationship with, especially if we feel like they're not doing enough around the house or to help with um, caregiving obligations. And that's a whole chapter in our book about dividing household and child care um, related tasks. So there's, we can certainly talk more about that. But thinking about, okay, you're with this person, they want what's best for you and what's best for their relationship. So giving them the benefit of the doubt and extending some grace to them in the way that you're um, approaching these conversations, but not assuming that they can read your mind and know what's important to you. You have to share that with them and really let them see into your intimate thoughts. And my co-author's um, husband was a psychiatrist and he shared 
the definition of intimacy, which we love, which is into me see, right? Intimacy, closeness with someone is allowing them to see into you, into your innermost thoughts and desires. And that's very vulnerable. It's not easy, but that is the best way to establish trust and commitment, which relationship experts John and Julie Gottman have shown is so critical um, for sound relationships to flourish. Abby, can you give us like a quick, just a short summary of some of the main points that we've talked through in the first um, half hour, um, a little less than half hour um, for anyone um, that's kind of just catching up and going to listen to the rest of the conversation. So we've talked about why the conventional wisdom of how we should make big life decisions, which is separating uh, money decisions or financial decisions and thinking about those only with our heads from love decisions, relationship decisions, and thinking about those only with our hearts is really flawed. All big life decisions, whether it's um, who you spend your life with, to what job you should take, to where you should live, all the way up to um, if a relationship isn't working out, caring for elderly relatives, all involve a component of head and heart. And why, if you're ignoring one of them, you are missing a huge part of the picture, which can lead to decisions that you will regret. Uh, we started to talk about our five-step framework, which is the framework that we share in the book and that can be applied to any big life decision, and we call it the five C's. And so far, we talked about the first C, which is clarify what's most important to you. The second C, which is communicate with the people most involved in the decision. We haven't yet talked about the third through fifth C, so maybe that's a good um, time to do that now. The third C is um, really about choices. And so often when we are making big life decisions, we tend to kind of get very binary in our thinking. Um, should I marry this person or should I break up with them? Should I go for the promotion or should I find another job? And the truth is that there are lots of shades in between those two extremes. And by trying to generate more choices, we often end up with some creative options that allow us to have more of what we want and have your cake and eat it too. So being um, able to get creative, to generate more choices often leads to more optimal um, outcomes. The fourth C is about check-in. Um, check-in with friends, family, trusted resources, published studies like we've talked about. Um, you are not alone in this decision, even though it might feel um, like you're um, very lonely when you're in the midst of the decision. And so checking in with other people who have faced this decision, um, asking them not what should I do necessarily, because I don't think that that is always a helpful question, but help me understand how you thought about this question. Um, if you have people who you see um, have a really great relationship, talk about how did you know they were the right person for you, right? Um, published studies can be really helpful. I'll give you an example of a published study that I learned about when I was taking my co-authors class was about, I always thought I would work part-time once I had kids. That was what I saw my mom do. So many of my friends' parents, particularly um, their mothers, worked part-time as a way to um, kind of incorporate their families into their careers. But there are a lot of studies that show that women um, or anyone really who works part-time, but particularly women, um, make less on an hourly basis, even if you're a salaried employee, than 
um, their full-time equivalents have fewer benefits, fewer advancement opportunities, and I am somebody who cares a lot about equity, and so that just didn't sit well with me, and so I vowed to figure out a way to work full-time so that I wasn't um, working for less um, you know, money uh, per hour than my peers who worked full-time would be, and that study was really important to me, and it kind of stuck out for me. Um, and then the last C is consequences. So it's really about thinking through the potential outcomes of your decision um, that could be positive outcomes or negative outcomes. And as as humans, we tend to weight the short-term decisions, uh, short-term outcomes rather, really high. Um, we kind of give them a lot of weight. We kind of over-index in them, on them. And so one exercise that we like to do is thinking through, making yourself think through short-term, medium, and long-term decisions. So short-term, I would say, is, you know, about six months. Medium-term is six months to two years. And then beyond two years is kind of the long-term implications. And by um, making yourself kind of think through the implications on these different time horizons, you can overcome this bias towards short-term thinking that we all have and start to think through, okay, yeah, there might be some decisions that are um, going to have negative consequences in the short term. Moving is one, like it's actually really hard to kind of start over in a new city, but in the long run, it might be a better home for you and you will make friends, you will become more established. And so it might make sense for you in the long run to make that type of decision where if you only focus on what it would be like in the short term, you might not. Um, so that's, that's the fifth C. So to build on that, do you think that the same advice applies to young couples that are starting out their lives together, as well as couples that have been together, you know, for decades or longer? Um, should they think about it the same way? Yeah, I think there's lots of commonalities um, that can apply to all couples. I mean, certainly when you're just starting out, you have um, fewer assets and fewer debts, most likely, than couples that are, you know, further out in life. Um, one trend we know is that people are getting married later or actually not getting married at all. Um, and so things like prenup agreements um, are on the rise. So it's something that couples today um, ha- think about more than their you know, parents' generation or even um, you know their grandparents thought about when people tend to get married much earlier in life. Um, so we think this our framework and the research can benefit everyone. Certainly couples that are earlier on in their relationship um, have more decisions in front of them. And so uh, the, I, this is the book I wish I had, you know, when I just graduated from college and, you know, was making some of those decisions I talked about and moving to a new city and moving in with someone, um, trying to figure out if they were the right person for me. And um, I think it's, it's again, wish I had this earlier. Don't think it's too late for anyone. So I've definitely had people who are further on in their relationship say, yeah, we've made a lot of these decisions, but actually the chapter on elder care and retirement is really relevant for us right now. And it's so helpful to hear how other people um, are dealing with this and approaching this. And um, I think, again, the notion of retirement has, is changing so much where it used to be kind of a switch that flipped and you went from like working to being retired. And now it's much more of like a dimmer where it's going up and down. People are um, engaging in 
in different types of um, work rather than, you know, being retired and playing golf all day. Um, and so, so it's very relevant for folks who are, you know, not in early um, stages of decision making as well. So I have a follow question um, in my DMs and they asked if you have an example of how to check in. Um, they said, especially with money decisions, um, it can be a very loaded issue and it can be, can cause like hurt in a relationship with friends and family if you bring it up. So if you have any um, examples, they can kind of take on, learn from, sorry. Yeah, well, I'd say that the check-in step really depends on what the specific question is, because there are there are topics where it's really helpful to check in more um, widely. So I'll give you an example. Um, when you're looking for a new job, there's research that shows that um, the more you talk about what you're looking for and the more you um, sort of have conversations with people outside your inner circle, uh, people who are, let's say, like second or third degree LinkedIn connections, those are called weak ties. And weak ties are more likely to have access to information, particularly when it comes to job opportunities that you don't have simply because they're connected to other people than you are and other networks. And so that's the example of a type of decision where it is actually really helpful to check in broadly. Um, and it's you would be surprised at how many opportunities come from people who you wouldn't think would have any idea of the types of things you're looking for. On the other hand, there are other decisions that are not very helpful to check in broadly about. And that, you know, one of those decisions is um, having a child. That's a really personal decision about whether and when to have a child. And often um, we talk to someone, so we did a, a big survey as part of the research for this book. And um, talked to one respondent who said she actually really limited her check-ins about that question until she was pretty sure in her mind about what she wanted to do because she was concerned that asking too many people would give her, you know, wildly different answers that would end up being confusing. And she wanted to get really clear about her own feelings about the topic and um, and kind of wrap her own mind around it before she did a lot of check-ins. So, I would say, you know, it does depend on the type of question um, that if it is a financial question and it's, say, about, you know, how much you should look to spend for your first house. I mean, there are professionals who can weigh in, look at your budget and give you um, a range. So I certainly think check-ins can and should involve professionals like financial advisors, um, therapists, um, other people who are trained to give you sage advice. Um, but you can also think about just people you admire, right? If there's somebody who um, is just someone who you're like, they just seem to make good decisions. Um, you can bring it up and say, hey, I wonder if you're willing to go for a walk or get coffee or a drink at some point and just like help me understand how you've approached some of these big financial decisions. Like I know you bought a house recently or I know you you know, moved across the country. Like, how did you think about how to budget for that? And um, people are really willing, especially if you're um, asking them because you think they're, they've made good decisions to um, open the kimono more than you would think. And certainly having, um, you know, just being upfront about what you're looking to get out of the conversation can be really helpful. But people are very flattered when you think that they're a good decision maker and they might be willing to share more than you give them credit for. Great. So I also want to share um, 
kind of someone that shared their personal experience with uh, how they split their money. So someone DM me and said that since their son was born in 1999, um, his wife became a stay-at-home mom and they put all of their wages into a joint account. Um, and he had a like a personal account to spend on himself. Um, but he said 25 years later, it's still working. Um, they pull all their income and each person is given an allowance per month. And so he said, um, it's a partnership and the money is not an issue. So that's kind of his take on on splitting money. So I, I think he agrees with, with what you're saying of kind of how you pull it together and share an account. Well, what I love about the example that he shared is that even though it sounds like, you know, he was the breadwinner for a lot of years, they each got an allowance. I think sometimes the way people approach it is, oh, the person who is not in the workforce gets the allowance. And they they feel almost like a child that way, right? Like I'm getting some money from the person who has the majority of the income. And that can feel a little bit icky. But I love that what they did is each get an allowance, right? So that means that money is going into savings, which it should be. Money is going to pay expenses. And then they each get some, you know, fun money, right? Um, which is what they could spend on the things that they want, the things that are um, the pleasures that, like they want a latte if they want, you know, to see a, you know, concert. Like those are some things that they could do out of their um, allowance, and it doesn't have the power issues that sometimes um, that that term could have if it's only given to one person in the relationship. So kudos to whoever had that example. So I have another uh, question in the DMs and um, this person is asking, so they're moving abroad for work and they're wondering, um, they're moving abroad for work with their partner and they're wondering how um, would they go about kind of as a couple saving for something like that? Like what factors do they need to consider or how should they kind of consider the breakdown of costs um, when they're both moving and I believe only one of them is moving. Uh, one of them has a job that they're moving for. Yeah, so I would say this is a perfect example of where check-ins could be really helpful. Um, do they know anybody else who has moved recently, ideally to the same city that they're considering? Um, if it's a move for work, can the employer put them in touch with someone who recently made that move, who they can ask, um, talk about, again, how that um, couple thought about or a person thought about the budget that they would need for the relocation. Um, again, we're not all on our own in this. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Um, certainly uh, checking in with people who have done this and who can even share. I mean, I, I've done this a lot um, where, where people are like willing to share spreadsheets with me and like things that I <laughs> wouldn't have expected. Um, and so, you know, you could always give them the out, say, I totally understand if you're not comfortable, but I would be so grateful if you would be willing to share how you thought about it and um, what were some of the things that you didn't expect that ended up being expenses. Um, and I think there are all sorts of financial tools now that are really helpful in, in these sorts of things. You can have banks where you set up um, specific accounts for savings for really directed topics. So rather than just have like one giant savings account, one giant checking account, you could have like a fund where you're saving a portion of your income into a relocation account. Um, you can have a fund, like my husband and I renovated one of our bathrooms and we had a fund, we have a fund that we um, fund every year for home improvements. And some years, you know, we put money in the fund and we don't end up having to use it. But 
then we renovated the bathroom and it was like way more expensive than we expected. Fortunately, we had some money in that fund. And so it wasn't as stressful as it would have been if we hadn't have been putting money into that fund over the years. So I would say, you know, the more you can compartmentalize the um, it, within your shared dollars, um, where what these funds are intended to do and finance, um, the more transparent your budgeting process can be. Kind of moving on, or from your research, have you seen anything about the different like financial challenges um, that marriages have? Because I think a lot of times, like our parents think of marriage differently than we do today, and sometimes I think there people can't really relate. We have different challenges, kind of money. You know, it doesn't go as far as it used to before. Um, do you have any? Have you noticed any like big differences between um, marriages? today and then challenges that our parents may have faced that there could be big differences there. Absolutely. I mean, on, um, I mentioned some of them, I think people are getting married later than our parents' generation did. So that means they have more assets and more debt. And they also were likely um, aware of people who, of more divorces, right, over time. And so uh, as a result, a lot of people these days are either setting up prenup agreements, so those are you know significantly on the rise, or they're actually what we advise in the book, um, if you don't want to go through the step of, of actually creating a prenup agreement, which is a legal document and lawyers are involved, and therefore lawyers' fees, um, you can basically go through all the steps of creating a prenup and fall short of actually creating the document. So what that means is you talk through all of the things you would do to set one up, you would disclose your assets, disclose your debts, um, talk about you know other income that you have if it's not coming, if you have investments, if you have um, inheritance money, if you have you know uh, all sorts of you know things that might not be you know in your bank account but are still financially relevant. Um, have a really open, transparent conversation about those, and um, talk you know again your prospective partner do that as well. And then talk about like, okay, we want to assume that marriages are going to work out. Nobody goes into a marriage expecting to get divorced. And yet, you know, 40 to 50% of marriages do end in divorce. And so how can you kind of anticipate some of the potential outcomes that might be, again, not desirable, but possible and think about, okay, well, how do we want to set up our lives so that this doesn't become an issue if things do go sideways? Um, again, assuming positive intent, but also having a heavy dose of pragmatism and realism. And so um, my co-author, who did get divorced from her first husband, when she got remarried, um, they created a prenup agreement, but instead of having two separate lawyers involved, they actually only had one. And that lawyer said, like, this is very unusual. People tend to not hire the same lawyer. I'm like required to give you my disclosure statement that this is very unusual and that like this, I'm not representing either one of you then. And they said, that's right. You're representing our marriage. We are coming together in full disclosure with one another about what our financial situations are. And we want you to help um, draw up this document that would be relevant if that marriage dissolved, but it's not trying to advantage one or the other of us. It's just making sure we're really transparent about what we want to happen. And so that that's another alternative is you kind of have a, a prenup, but it, you're going about it not as uh, protecting 
your assets in case the other person, you know, tries to get something out of you that you don't want to give to them, but actually protecting your assets in the, in the context of a marriage and being really clear about how you would um, treat that. Her first husband, um, they had a, a very amicable divorce and they wanted, and, and she's a big believer in amicable divorce. And we actually have, you know, top, a chapter in our book focused on ending a marriage and a relationship gracefully and how you go about that and why it's so important, um, certainly from a financial perspective, as well as from um, an other perspectives. And they had children who were involved and um, wanted to make sure that they were preserving their experience for their children, where they didn't feel like they had to choose a parent um, after the divorce happened. So um, I think that being very thoughtful ahead of any um, legal document can be can really serve you uh, on the other side. So something that we've seen happen a lot more um, since, you know, the pandemic is couples are working from home. Um, A lot of people are sharing small spaces together um, and that can just create a lot of, you know, heated conversation. And sometimes it's hard for people to balance their careers with housework and finances um, when they're spending so much time together. Um, Do you have any kind of advice for those couples that are dealing with that right now in this new like world of remote work? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I definitely um, have a lot of empathy. I mean, my husband and I used to work downtown and then, you know, March, 2020, like so many other people um, suddenly our home turned into a one room schoolhouse for our kids, our office, our offices, you know, and we live in a very small footprint home in um, the middle of the city. And so it was not meant to be all those things, um, a home gym, a, a restaurant where you serve every meal, right? This is not what everyone um, was anticipating. And so I would say, again, if you have a practice of regular check-ins with your partner, or even if you don't, it's a good time to to start that and to say, you know, we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of, of for many of us, of, of remote work. And there are going to be some things that the patterns that have developed over that time that maybe are serving us and maybe aren't serving us. And so, again, going back to the first C of clarify, before you have that conversation, do some self-reflection and say, okay, what's maybe what's working for me about the situation? What's not working for me about the situation? You know, what do you want to start? What do you want to stop? What do you want to continue? And, and then set a time, um, again, not a time where, you know, in between Zooms and you're like, you know, notice that your partner forgot to replace the toilet paper roll again. And you're like, oh, like you're driving me nuts. Can you not do this? Like that's, I would say, not the best time to bring it up. <laughs> but um, set aside some time when you're, you have a little bit more time and space and say, hey, you know, can we have a conversation about how this is going and I want to hear what's working for you. I want to share some things about what's what's working for me and what I wish would change. And then let's talk about how we can go about addressing those things. Um, I can share that personally, um, I do not do my best work from home. I find myself getting really distracted by all the things that need to be done in the house. Um, we have two kids, so there's always like stuff out of place. There's um, laundry that needs to be done. There's just endless amount of chores. And I really like the the fact of, you know, when I was in my office downtown, I didn't see any of those things. I could kind of give my um, undivided attention to my work. 
And so one thing that that I realized for myself, I needed to invest in a separate space to do my work, not only because our home wasn't really built for that, but also just kind of for my own mental health and my productivity. Um, finding So I actually found a separate space to rent as an office, um, had a conversation about um, how, if you know, what made sense financially about that, um, how we could make that work, what we were willing to spend on it. My husband doesn't mind working from home. And ha- in fact, he prefers it. So, you know, he got kind of the, the better room uh, at home, if you will. It happens to be a room where we have our workout equipment and we have like kids stuff in it. Certainly not a dedicated office, but, but it works for him. And then I got the office that is, you know, a short, like 10 minute walk away that I rent from um, someone else. And it allows me to do the best work that I want to do. And, you know, then my husband is able to use the office in our home. Um, And so, you know, maybe you can use this example. You can use like, again, if you have friends who have a different arrangement that you admire, use them as an example. But Think about all the things that have changed um, since you now work from home and how, again, back to the choices step, what choices do you have? You don't have to both do something that makes you miserable. And so if it's not working for one of you or both of you, try to generate more choices. Again, I got to this place of being able to rent an office because we started chasing down this idea of moving, moving to a bigger house. And what we thought was important to us was having more space. We then went through the framework, all the the C's, started to do the math, realized um, how much that would cost, um, what that that would tether us to jobs that we would then, you know, have to keep for a long time because of our bigger mortgage, kind of re-clarified that what was most important to us was not more space, but was actually career flexibility and the ability to take more entrepreneurial paths. I had been working on this book. My husband wanted to start his own business. And we decided, actually, we don't need more space. We need the ability to have control over our careers. And let's figure out a creative way to get more space that doesn't involve moving and taking on another, you know, a big mortgage. So that's what led to me renting a separate space nearby, which is about generating more choices. So one thing I do want to touch on, because I think it's important, I think a lot of people have had kids um, really recently as well, or are thinking about it right now. Um, What are factors that you think people should evaluate before having children or when they decided they are going to have children, what should they evaluate? So if you plan to combine children with a career, um, a really important factor to think about is childcare. And that is both the cost of childcare as well as the availability of quality childcare and the type of childcare that you want. And again, this is important to talk about with your partner, get on the same page because there are, and we have a whole chapter that goes into all the various ways that people have combined their careers with um, having a family. Um, a lot of people might assume, um, oh, you know, my parents will help with childcare. Well, have you talked to your parents about that? Um, I actually was just reading something, I forget where, but uh, it was a couple where they had assumed one the, the grandmother would help with childcare. And the grandmother said um, that she had expected to be paid. So all of a sudden, you know, that was something that they hadn't factored into. They thought they would get free childcare from the grandma and the grandma um, 
said, no, that's actually not, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to be paid. So making sure you're having a conversation, not just with your partner, but with all the potential people who are going to be involved in that child care to make sure they're on the same page. Um, if, you know, you think that you want to have a nanny, what, um, what are the important factors for you? Do you want to make sure, um, like, there are all sorts of nannies out there in terms of, and by the way, this was interesting to me in the research, um, a very small percentage of couples actually end up using nannies as childcare. I think it's like five to 7%. Um, the vast majority have family care or daycare. And so, um, again, and, and this is also very different kind of post-pandemic in terms of the childcare infrastructure that our country has. It's really not robust. Um, it has not come back from kind of pre-pandemic levels. And so really being realistic about what that looks like. Do you need to move um, to find quality childcare? So that's a really big topic that I would suggest people talk about in advance. Um, the other thing to consider is the dividing of household and childcare chores. And it's one of those things where um, because in heterosexual couples, there is a, well, in all couples, there is a birthing partner um, and a partner that did not give birth. And often a lot of the responsibilities for feeding and other things fall on the birthing partner, but that can set things up to be um, really lopsided in terms of responsibility. And so making sure you're having a really robust conversation in advance about all of the different tasks involved in um, having children and running a household and making sure you're dividing this up. We have an exercise in our book actually that helps you kind of think through all the potential tasks involved and divide it up with a, you know, think through how you would divide it up with a partner. Um, and that it often becomes a real flashpoint for couples, particularly when the first child arrives. So thinking about that, talking about it in advance, making sure you have a plan um, and a practice to check in if your plan isn't actually feeling equitable to both partners is really important. So I have a, a kind of a follow-up question from um, from an audience member. Um, they're asking if I, I what I'm getting from this question is that sometimes I think it creates tension, kind of coming up with these options with their partner, um, advocating for like a position on different things. Have you had any experience with advocating for part for relationships um, for partners in relationship to maybe go through a therapist to do this or like a neutral third party? Um, for it to come off as more impartial um, during these kind of check-ins and kind of reevaluating um, different things in your relationship, if that makes sense. Well, I'm, I'm trying to kind of yeah. paraphrase their question. I am a big believer in therapy, um, individual therapy, couple therapy. I mean, certainly having someone trained who is who can be that neutral third party can be really helpful. Um, and I know it's expensive. I know that. Um, but there are some some alternatives. I mean, thinking through, like, if you belong to a religious institution, sometimes um, you can think about uh, the clergy members as potential neutral third parties who can be helpful. Um, there are even, like, 12-step programs that have trained um, facilitators who can be helpful if there are other issues, maybe, that under underlying um, some of the differences. So, so certainly thinking about how to, if you, if you, sort of tried to have these conversations and you get into patterns that are um, just not working or you don't feel like they're productive, um, you know, introducing this idea of like, listen, we've been around and around in these conversations. 
I don't feel like we're, you know, either one of us is getting what we want out of them. Um, here are some options for how we might start to make some progress um, on this. And, you know, would you be open to this? And again, you don't need to commit to years and years of this, you know, maybe just, I think often these um, problems seem so daunting and insurmountable. We think about like, oh, like I just can't take on this this giant thing. Well, can you go to one meeting? Can you have like a you know thirty minute conversation with a potential therapist or a potential you know other you know third party who could you know just see how that goes? Um, so just you know don't need to get your partner to commit to you know um, an indefinite time of, you know, um, with a third party, but like, would they go to an initial intake visit? Um, that could be a, a good first step to recommend and then see how that goes. So, and the kind of last question on that is, so of course your book, which, um, again, will be linked in this event, post event. Um, but do you have any other relevant kind of research, um, for, for them to look into on like family issues and kind of having these discussions, um, of course, your book, um, if anything, other research that they can kind of go to as well. Yeah, well, a great book to um, on the issue of dividing chores um, is Eve Rodsky's Fair Play. Um, that is a really in-depth, deep dive into that topic. Um, but one thing that I would also say it's helpful to know is what is your default decision-making style? And on our website, which is um, moneylovebook.com. We have a quiz that you can take, which, you know, very short. Um, it's pretty fun. And it will give you a sense of what is your money and love decision-making style. And that's really helpful to know because it can, it's sort of your default style that everyone um, kind of defaults to, especially when you're stressed or when you have, you know, a big decision to make. And there are certain biases that you might have depending on your default decision-making style that um, you can kind of, again, guard against once you know what exists. And we, we give some of those examples um, on our website. So that's another thing that people can check out. So the, the last question that I want to end on, minus where people can see can find you um is what's the first money love slash like love question that the audience should be asking asking themselves when in relationships and kind of how to think about it in the first place as a kind of ending question well i can't answer that question for everyone right everyone is going to have a different money and love question that is top of their mind um what's what I can do is offer them a framework for how to think through whatever that question is. And so um, in our book, we have some exercises depending on what that first question is of how to apply the five-step framework to their money and love question. We actually also just came out with a 21-day um, text-based course that people can take, especially with that question in mind, Rachel, like whatever money and love question is top of mind for them, whether, whether it's like, is this person my person? Or, you know, how do we divide um, all the things we are responsible for? Or uh, we're thinking about moving, how should we think about that? Um, that the course is designed exactly to take the question that's the top of mind for you. And through a series of um, audio files and text messages, it will walk people through how to apply the framework to their money and love question that's top of their mind so that's another thing you can find on our website awesome all right so how can people find you so again i want to mention that her book um her website is linked 
to the event. So a post event in your me profile, you can find the whole recording of this conversation as well as links to find Abby's book and her website. Um, but beyond that, Abby, where can people reach out to you and what for? Yeah. Um, so I am on Instagram at Abby.Davison. I'm on Twitter at Abby Davison and um, I'm on LinkedIn too. So you can reach out to me uh, any of those places. And um, you can also just reach out on the website as well. There's a place to do that. But um, this has been such a great conversation, Rachel. Really good questions from everyone. And um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Abby. I feel like this is really relevant to our audience. We see a ton of questions about this um, in our bowls. Um, you know, hopefully maybe we can even have you back for one of our text-based Q&As in our relationship bowl. I feel like they'd have a lot of great questions for you. So um, I'd love that about that as well, because I think there'll, there'll be a lot of questions for you, for you in that bowl. <laughs> awesome. All right, everyone have a great today's Wednesday, rest of your Wednesday, and then we'll see you tomorrow for School Live. That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and, who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon! <laughs>